My family has always been really into movies, but more than anything, we love gangster movies, like The Godfather. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. My mother will go to her grave saying The Godfather Part Two is not only one of the greatest sequels of all time. Yeah, I really liked it. It's really good. But it's also better than the original. I got into the mob movie mania a few years ago. I fell in love with Goodfellas. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. This winter, I finished all six and a half seasons of The Sopranos. Are you in the mafia? I'm in a waste management business. Everybody immediately assumes you're mobbed up. It's a stereotype, and it's offensive. That's Tony Soprano, and there's some truth to what he's saying. Thanks to TV and movie stereotypes, most people assume that all mobsters are Italian. Or worse, that all Italians are mobsters. Or they think all New York organized crime comes down to La Cosa Nostra, the five families, the mafia. But like 13 million other Americans, my family recently spent our Thanksgiving watching The Irishman. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too. Even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. He doesn't paint houses. He kills people. In case you haven't seen it, The Irishman is about Frank Sheeran, an Irish truck driver who becomes a hitman involved with the Buffalino crime family. He was the only Irish guy in the bunch. Most of the movies we love are about Italian and sometimes Irish mobsters. But in reality, organized crime is just as diverse as the city of New York. So when I came across a story from 1997 about a 35-year-old man who called himself the Indian Godfather, I knew I had to learn more. Gurmeet Singh Dinsa was a Sikh immigrant who came from a poor village in India to New York City in the early 80s. He arrived with no money, but within a few years he amassed a criminal gas station empire worth millions of dollars. It involved murder, bribery, corruption, and intimidation. The whole thing was shocking. Two young immigrants from India who were basically murdered in cold blood in a contract killing. But, you know, this kind of story is not unheard of in America. <laughs> we wanted to know how does a guy come to America with nothing and end up the Indian godfather? I'm Abby Shull. And I'm Grace Goodwin. And this is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This is season one, New York in the 90s, the Indian godfather. In the 1990s, a close-knit immigrant community was terrorized by one of its own. Despite the risk, In 2001, Discovery Channel produced this docudrama series called FBI Files. It had a special episode about Dinsa called Deadly Uncover Business. One man's deadly business. When Abby and I first discovered this show, we couldn't believe how hilariously corny it was. I'm not sure what I expected, but basically the whole episode is done with reenactments. And they're not scripted, so it's just this very dramatic narration over these scenes for 45 minutes. 
In the early 1980s, Gurmeet Singh Dinsa came to the United States from the Punjab region of India. He settled in the Bronx, where he took a job as a gas station attendant. Just a year later, he managed to take over the lease of that gas station. It became the first location of what would soon become a regional chain of gas stations called City Gas. That gas station was known in the neighborhood for being a sort of unofficial parking lot. People could park there without the risk of being towed. There's a local legend about the first day Dinsa took over that gas station. Apparently, he took a baseball bat and smashed in all the windows on every single car in the lot that night. This established him in the Sikh community in Queens and began his reign of terror. Within five years, Dinsa had 51 gas stations in New York City. His annual profits topped $60 million. Ben Campbell. Hi, Ben. This is Abby Scholl. Hi, Abby. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Ben Campbell, a former United States attorney, was one of the prosecutors on Dinsa's case. And we're just really fascinated by this because it's just such a, um, a different story than you're used to hearing. Well, it's, it's definitely an unusual case. Uh, and it's, it's got some, some things that make it feel like a classic organized crime case. Um, but it, it was very distinctive. I, ben was also one of the people interviewed for that episode of the FBI files. Wow, that's kind of funny because I had a lot more hair back then. Um, <laughs> in 1997, his team's investigation led them into the heart of a Sikh immigrant community in Queens. Though most New Yorkers at the time didn't know about Dinza, this neighborhood did. There's a Sikh population in New York of 50 to 100,000 people. I mean, every time you talk to somebody from that group, they all knew about him. And we had never heard of the guy because nobody ever really contacted law enforcement to tell anybody about it. Dinza had hundreds of employees. Most of them were immigrants from the same region of India that he'd come from. They traveled to the United States and settled mostly in Queens neighborhoods like Woodside, Flushing, Corona, and Elmhurst. A note for our listeners. Most of the people in this story have the same last name, Singh. In the Sikh religion, it's common for male members to take the name Singh, which means lion in the Punjabi language. So the more we learned, the more we talked to people in the community, the more that the legend got bigger and bigger and bigger. We learned more and more about it and began to realize this is a much bigger problem than we thought it was initially. Dinsa made his millions by overcharging customers. He set up a pump rigging scheme at each of his gas stations. Here's how it worked. An electronic device operated by a remote control would overcharge city gas customers by about six to seven percent on every purchase. Most gas station owners make a profit of about 10 to 15 cents per gallon, but Dinsa was earning a profit of around 50 cents per gallon. He's ripping people off and it's everywhere. Every one of his gas stations, every one of these devices was installed. They were very elaborate. They got better year over year. Dinza was even bribing an inspector from the Department of Consumer Affairs. Dinza would pay the inspector every two weeks in exchange for warning him about upcoming inspections. He'd then turn off the pump rigging via the remote control. Profits from the gas stations allowed Dinza and his wife, Miriam Azadali, to move their growing family into a large oceanside home in the Mill Basin neighborhood of Brooklyn. So we're out here in Mill Basin, Brooklyn, which like it's a part of New York that doesn't look like New York. One of the first things Grace and I did when we started reporting was visit Dinsa's old neighborhood. It looks very suburban. We just 
took a train to a bus, took us almost two hours total. This neighborhood is a coin toss into the ocean. The 2,400 square foot home on Jamaica Bay cost $525,000 when he bought it in 1991. It even had a swimming pool, space for his 34 foot yacht, and a brand new BMW. Dinsa's old house has tall columns that frame the doorway. It has a red brick pattern with ornate stone fencing around the yard. It kind of looks like a McMansion. You know, those suburban homes with a bunch of mismatched architectural features. I never really understood old money versus new money until we wandered around this area. This is a new money neighborhood. His house was sold over 10 years ago. I'm sorry, she doesn't live here anymore. The new owners told us they bought it from Dinza's wife, Miriam, but they didn't know her I do not. or the family personally. My brother purchased the house from her. Dinza had so much money that he could afford some of the best attorneys in the country. One of them was Gerald Shargell, who had once defended notorious mafiosos like John Gotti and John Gotti Jr. Here's Ben Campbell again. It was a little surprising when we found out that Jerry was his lawyer. You know, we knew what his background was quite well from our from our organized crime colleagues. So it raised an eyebrow when he when he hired him. I'm like, wow, okay, maybe we're on to something here. Maybe this guy, maybe maybe this guy is a bad guy. And then when Jerry was talking about him and saying that he was his best client and he'd been representing him for years, that was another moment when we were like, how come we don't know about this guy? One of Dins's other lawyers was Alan Dershowitz. You know, the Alan Dershowitz who represented President Trump at his impeachment trial. Dershowitz also represented O.J. Simpson. And Jeffrey Epstein. And Harvey Weinstein. And Mike Tyson. Despite Dinza's big-name lawyers, there were only a few newspaper accounts, and many of the people who were a part of the case remember exactly couldn't remember the details. I don't remember that case. I don't remember at this point. We knew we had to get our hands on the court records. Normally, we'd be able to access these records through PACER, the Public Access to Court Electronic Records database. But PACER only had a fraction of the documents, about 30 pages. They contained the details of just one of Dinza's dozens of crimes an especially brutal one. In the summer of 1995, Cool Wants Sing was working as a gas station attendant at a city gas location in the Bronx. One night, the gas station was robbed, and Dinsa blamed Cool Want because Cool Want had supposedly forgotten to lock the safe. Days after the robbery, Cool Want went back to work at the gas station. That night, Witnesses saw him get into a city gas truck with two of Dins' cousins. He was never seen again. At the time, Jim Tampolini was a detective with the NYPD Department of Investigation squad. He says this case was tricky because Cool Want was a recent immigrant and nobody really knew him very well. No, no big contacts in, in America. And so the guy goes missing the last time he was seen, da, da, da. Three months later, in the fall of 1995, Kulwant's brother, Manmohan Singh, came to New York from India. He wanted to figure out what happened to his brother. It wasn't normal for Kulwant to all of a sudden drop off communication with his family. So Manmohan got a job working at another gas station, not one of Dinza's. 
For the next two years, Manmohan gathers evidence about his brother's disappearance. Dinza made multiple threatening phone calls to Manmohan, telling him to stop looking for his brother. But Manmohan didn't stop. Police say he had multiple confrontations with Dinza, where he accused him of killing his brother. According to those 30 pages of court records, on March 16, 1997, Manmohan was working at the gas station. He was approached by a man asking for a can of oil. Manmohan and the man went into the office at the gas station. Then the man pulled out a gun. He ordered Manmohan to kneel down. The man told him to put his head on a small couch in the office. Then he shot him twice in the back of the head. Here's Detective Tony Berzada talking about Manmohan's murder in his interview for that FBI Files episode. It looked like it was a typical gas station robbery at the beginning, but then examining the scene thoroughly, it seemed that it was more like an assassination or this person was a target because he was shot very close range behind the head and he was on his knees. The hitman was Marvin Dodson, a young man from Queens. Dinza had given him $4,000 to kill Manmohan. Dinza wanted him silenced before he could go to the police. Yeah, it looked like a robbery, but they whacked him. We hadn't given up on tracking down the court records from Dinza's case just because they weren't on Pacer. On a rainy day in February, Abby and I visited the Eastern District Court of New York in Brooklyn, where the case was tried. We expected to walk away with everything we needed, but we were told that the documents now live in the National Archives in Missouri. We spoke to Donna at the National Archives. She told us we'd need to call back the Eastern District Court in Brooklyn to get more information from them. Then she could tell us if her archive even has the records. Would you be able to check if you have it? No, we don't do it by name. So we called the clerk of court in Brooklyn. Wait while I transfer your call. Court, how can I help you? Hi, I was wondering if you could help me find um, the accession or transfer number for a specific case. So it's 1 colon 97 dash CR. Hold on, please. Thank you. Oh, oh. Did she hang up on me? She hung up on us. We spent about two weeks going back and forth between the National Archives in Missouri and the Eastern District Court in Brooklyn. We did finally get what we needed to make the request from the National Archives. So we call back Donna. Hi, is this Donna? And she tells us. So you're looking at approximately $1,000 a box. $1,000 a box. We needed a total of 11 boxes of documents. That would be $11,000. $11,000 to get public records that are supposed to be easily accessible to the public for the public. Since when do public records cost thousands of dollars? Grace and I are students, so there's no way we'd be able to pay that. Even for a journalist with an institution backing them, $11,000 is obscene. We continued calling Donna and the people at the Eastern District Court in Brooklyn. Eventually, we got the request down to about $500. Then, 
the COVID-19 pandemic hit. The World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus outbreak a, a national emergency. New data from the World Health Organization. Deadly as 24 hours last week. The Eastern District Court in Brooklyn closed. The National Archive in Missouri closed. Most courts across the country closed. And just like that, we were back to square one with very few records to tell us the details about this case. When Abby and I went to the Eastern District Court in Brooklyn back in February, we did actually walk away with a single packet of documents. Those documents detailed even more grisly murders directed by Dinsa. It all started at the funeral of Manmohan Singh, the man Dinsa had killed for asking too many questions about his brother's disappearance. A man named Satinderjit Singh was at the funeral and so were a couple of NYPD detectives. The detectives introduced themselves to Satinderjit, and Satinderjit told them he'd be willing to talk about Manmohan's death and Dinsa's other crimes. He even convinced his friend Sarvjit Singh to talk to police as well. As it turns out, Sarvjit had been a witness to one of those other crimes, a 1991 murder. It happened at a party at a restaurant in Queens. Sarvjit told police he saw Dinsa's brother, Gurdeep Gogi Singh, shoot and kill a man in what was essentially a bar fight. We don't know many details, but what we do know is that almost immediately after that shooting, Dinsa sent Gogi back to India so he could evade the police. So when Sarvjit and Satinderjit first went to the police, they told them that Gogi, Dinsa's brother, was back in the United States. They got the courage to call the police. They told the officers, Gogi is back, and the police started to put together their case. A few months later, in June 1997, police arrested and charged Gogi with the murder. Of course, this was not good for Dinsa. So he looked for every possible way to get his brother out of a jam and have him flee the country again. Dinsa suspected that Satinderjit had been talking to the police. So Dinsa called Satinderjit's girlfriend, he threatened to kill both of them if Satinderjit didn't stay quiet. With the information from Satinderjit and Sarvjit, police were ready to go to the U.S. Attorney's Office with their evidence against Dinsa. That's where Ben Campbell came in. And we all decided, well, the next thing we should do is maybe sit down and talk to some of the informants and start to work the case up. That's in June. I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going on vacation for a week or two. When I get back, why don't we turn to this? While Ben was on vacation, all hell broke loose. On June 18, 1997, Satinderjit Singh, the informant police met at the funeral, got in his car with his cousin outside his house in Queens. But when he tried to pull out into the street, his car was blocked on both sides. A city gas van blocked him from the front and a black Lexus sedan from behind. Inside the van were three hitmen, Marvin Dodson, Evans Alonzo Powell, and Walter Jazz Samuels. Marvin tried to exit the passenger door, but it was broken. So he climbed around the passenger seat into the back of the van and got out the sliding back door. He walked right up to Satinderjit's car and fired 10 shots from a 9mm Ruger, killing him. Satinderjit's cousin, Kirpal, was actually in the passenger seat, but he wasn't hurt. He got out of the car and started to run away. Marvin ran after him. Marvin then grabbed the closest thing he could find, a mango, and threw it at Kirpal as he was running away. Marvin got back into the van, 
and the group drove back to a city gas station with the black Lexus following closely behind. Driving the Lexus was Dinsa. Marvin later testified that Dinsa had paid him and the other two hitmen $5,000 each to kill Satinderjit. After the murder, he told them to get out of town. Police picked up Marvin on July 4, 1997, just a few weeks after Satinderjit's murder. Marvin told police he'd been hired by Dinsa to work security at one of the gas stations. But Marvin said he quickly became Dinsa's enforcer. Dinsa even gave him a machine gun for protection. He said one day, Dinsa approached him and said, You shoot somebody, I'll give you $5,000. Marvin said Dinsa had given him photographs of Satinderjit and printouts of his home address and license plate number. He wanted to make sure Marvin killed the right guy. The same day they spoke to Marvin, police arrested Dinsa. They charged him with murder in aid of racketeering and using a firearm during a crime of violence. He was later charged with additional counts of fraud and murder. So, remember that FBI Files episode? At the beginning, it's introduced by a man named Jim Kallstrom. I'm Jim Kallstrom, former head of the FBI's New York office. We talked to Jim about his time running New York's FBI unit. He worked on thousands of cases, so he couldn't remember the specifics of Dinza's case. But he had a lot to say about the larger landscape of organized crime. You know, the criminals today don't have the sophistication or the, or the organization that, that La Cosa Nostra did. La Cosa Nostra. Hollywood, as much as we love it, would have us believe that all organized crime in America started with the Italian Mafia. In reality, the underbelly of organized crime in New York City began not with the Italian Mafias, but with Irish mobs. In the 1840s, Irish immigrants began arriving in New York by the thousands. As outsiders in a new society, some formed secret brotherhoods and street gangs to get ahead in an unforgiving city. The businesses they were running illegally the cement business, the garbage business, the unions, the meat packers, the went on and on and on and on. It wasn't until the early 1900s that Italian immigrants began arriving in droves. Some brought with them a tradition of criminal activity based in old country family hierarchy. In New York, they formed La Cosa Nostra, or Our Family. Gang warfare. The gangsters turn against them. Millions were revolting against the Prohibition Amendment in a mass disregard for the laws of the land. Enforcing their orders by violence, even by murder. And by the 1930s, the five most powerful Italian mafia families emerged. Joe Colombo is himself often identified as the head of one of New York's five mafia families of organized crime. For the next 50 years, the Italian Mafia dominated the New York crime scene. Let the gamblers, Ken Horns, racketeers and gangsters take notice that they have to keep away from New York from now on. That is, until... The RICO law was passed back in the 1970s. RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations. It enabled the FBI to charge multiple members of the same organized crime operation at the same time. In the 80s, we really did away with what was, was organized crime. Mob crackdowns continued into the 90s, most notably with the John Gotti and John Gotti Jr. trials. For nearly three decades, the name Gotti has been synonymous with organized crime in America. One thing all mob empires, regardless of their ethnicity, have in common 
is their roots as immigrants and their use of violence to get ahead, like Dinsa. But unlike the Italian mafia and even the Irish mob, Dinsa's criminal empire disappeared when he did. At Dinsa's trial in 1999, prosecutors needed people from the Sikh community to come forward and testify against him. At first, no one would do it because they were terrified of retribution. Ben remembers clearly how he and his team fought to keep Dinsa from getting out on bail once he was finally arrested. And then when he did realize he was not coming home, we got a lot of cooperation from the community because, remember, he prayed on his own. They didn't rally to him as somebody that they really liked. They were afraid of him because he prayed on them because he, they all spoke the same language. During the trial, Ben says the courtroom was usually pretty empty. But one day, he walked in and the typical defense side of the courtroom was filled with people from the Sikh community. And so we walk in. And we're like, ah, these people all must be for Dinsa. And we look around, and there's some people there that we know because we, you know, talked to them and interviewed them. And at one point, we have a break for lunch, and one of the agents goes to talk to one of the, because they want to find out who these people are. And they say, well, we're all here for the government. It turned out they'd all sat on the wrong side of the court. When the court resumed after lunch, everyone had shifted to the other side of the room. They were not on Dinsa's side. They all wanted him convicted. Also present at that trial was none other than John Gotti Jr. According to court records, Ben and his team presented nearly 100 witnesses during the four-month-long trial. Police were able to connect Dinza to Satinjajit's murder using cell tower data, which was new at the time. They knew it was him driving the black Lexus. Ben Campbell says it was highly unusual that Dinza would order a contract killing, but then still show up at the scene of the murder to make sure the job got done. It sealed his fate. It made it crystal clear that the cooperators were telling the truth about what he did. Judge Edward Corman presided over the trial. It's been 30 years, but he says he's still never forgotten this case. In March 1999, the jury found Dinsa guilty of 21 out of the 29 counts he was charged with. Dinsa was convicted of racketeering and racketeering conspiracy. Two counts of murder. Three counts of conspiracy to commit murder. Two counts of obstruction of justice murder, also known as informant murder. Threatening to commit murder. Using a firearm during a crime of violence. Six counts of mail fraud and one count of mail fraud conspiracy. One count of conspiracy to commit interstate kidnapping and interstate kidnapping. Whenever I hang up the spikes, hands down, it will probably be one of the most important things I ever worked on. The prosecution asked for the death penalty. The New York Times, the New York Post, and the Associated Press all wrote that Dinza's wife, Miriam, cried during testimony as she was asked how her husband's death would affect their children. Judge Corman said the jury was moved by a video shown of Dinza's children. After just an hour of deliberation, the jury gave Dinza six life sentences. Dinza is still appealing. In April 2020, Dinza filed an appeal on the obstruction of justice murder charge. 
Dinsa's brother, Gogi, is now in prison too. In 1998, he was convicted for that murder in the bar in Queens. He's serving out his sentence in a maximum security prison in Comstock, New York. Back in early March, Abby and I wrote a letter to Dinsa. We had the letter translated into his first language, Punjabi. We sent both the English and Punjabi version of the letter to Dinsa at Federal Correctional Institution Shulkill in Pennsylvania. Dear Mr. Dinsa, we're part of a team of journalists working on a series of stories about notable events in New York City. ਅਸੀਂ ਇੱਕ ਪੱਤਰਕਾਰ ਦੀ ਟੀਮ ਆ ਜੋ 1990 ਦੀ ਦਿਹਾੜੀ ਵਿੱਚ ਨਿਊਯਾਰਕ ਸਿਟੀ ਦੀਆਂ ਮਹੱਤਵਪੂਰਨ ਘਟਨਾਵਾਂ ਬਾਰੇ ਕਈ ਕਹਾਣੀਆਂ ਲਿਖਣੀਆਂ ਦਾ ਕੰਮ ਕਰ ਰਹੀਆਂ ਹਾਂ ਅਸੀਂ ਤੁਹਾਡੇ ਕਾਰੋਬਾਰ ਸਿਟੀ ਵੀ ਨੈਵਰ ਹਰਡ ਬੈਕ ਦ ਵਨ ਫੋਟੋ ਵੀ ਫਾਊਂਡ ਆਫ ਡਿਨਸਾ ਇਜ਼ ਅ ਮਗ ਸ਼ਾਟ ਇਨ ਦ ਨਿਊਯਾਰਕ ਪੋਸਟ ਨੈਕਸਟ ਟੂ ਅ ਸਟੋਰੀ ਅਬਾਊਟ ਹਿਸ ਕਨਵਿਕਸ਼ਨ ਦ ਹੈਡਲਾਈਨ ਰੀਡਸ ਕੁਆਟ ਮਿਲੀਅਨਰ ਗਿਲਟੀ ਜੂਰੀ ਕਨਵਿਕਟਡ ਗਰਮੀਤ ਡਿਨਸਾ ਸਿੰਘ ਆਫ 20 ਕਾਊਂਟਸ ਅਨਕੁਆਟ It doesn't even get his name right. What strikes me about the photo is his eyes. They're dark and stern, like he's looking right through you. He has a heavy brow, which probably adds to his air of intimidation. You know, you would meet him today. He would be smart, articulate, charming. He would be polite. He had a good sense of humor. He would present as a smart, savvy businessman. And that's what he was like. Detective Jim Tampolini says Dinsa's organization didn't have the scope of others like Gotti and the Gambino crime family. Dinsa kept his criminal activity confined to just a few people. He didn't have a cascading hierarchy of underbosses, consiglieres, and foot soldiers to maintain his criminal enterprise. He rarely involved people from the Sikh community in his crimes. He just intimidated them, stole from them, and sometimes killed them. He didn't really trust anyone. Because he was the sole mind of the operation, it ended when he went to prison. But Ben did compare Dinsa's organization to Goodfellas. You know, we always called each other Goodfellas. and you watch good fellas and you you cut down the number of people in that by two thirds we were good fellas wise guys and you made everybody seek you would have a story that was very similar remember cool one the gas station attendant who disappeared whose brother later came looking for him dinza was charged but never convicted in his disappearance there was a rumor that dinza dumped his body into the ocean from his boat Divers even searched the water behind Dinsa's house on Jamaica Bay, but they came up empty. But uh, I'll show you more than that. I don't think they really know how many people he killed. According to Detective Jim Tampolini, police went looking for a body buried at one of Dinsa's gas stations in Brooklyn. They even spent some time digging up the ground under the tanks. Looking for his body, but we didn't find it. The word has it that we had the wrong gas station. Somebody buried under a gas tank somewhere in Brooklyn, but we haven't found it. There's a chance someone is still buried at an old city gas station on Avenue C. Jim Tampolini believes we'll never truly know the full extent of Dinsa's crimes. Ben Campbell says that in organized crime cases, it's common that not all the crimes get solved. We all started with just that one drive-by shooting in Queens, and it turns out there's this whole story that just emerges. It was like, uh, it's like finding out you have termites, you know, you scratch a little bit and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
And what about those 11 boxes of court records we were never able to get? What was in those? Are there more bodies lost at sea or forgotten underneath gas tanks? Perhaps only Densa knows. Shoe Leather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Grace Goodwin. And me, Abby Shull. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Dale Maharaj is our co-professor. Keshav Pandya is our technical advisor. Punjabi translations by Mariam Khan and Harpreet Kaur. Stuart Carl is our legal advisor. Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian Christina Williams, Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson, Peter Leonard from Gimlet Media, Rachel Quester from The Daily, Madeline Barron and Samara Freemark from American Public Media, Emily Martinez and David Blum from Audible, Susan White from Garage Media, Nate DeMaio from The Memory Palace, Jonathan Hirsch from Neon Hum Media, and Clint Schaff from the LA Times Studios. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, by Ben Lewis, Doran Zunis, and Camille Miller. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. For more information about this episode and Shoe Leather, go to our website, shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest Shoe Leather happenings, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at shoeleathercast. 